Hi. We're going to be talking about violence and sexual violence in this series. There's also some strong language. Please take care while listening. Welcome back to the official companion podcast of HBO's I'll Be Gone in the Dark. I'm your host, Nancy Miller. This week, the documentary series comes to an end with the arrest of Joseph James D'Angelo, the man long known as Eron's and the Golden State Killer. After decades of questions and dead ends, the survivors of his gruesome attacks finally have a chance at resolution. Today, for our last episode, I'll be speaking with one of those incredible survivors, Chris Pedretti. Chris's story is one of the most powerful parts of the HBO series, and I'm truly honored to have the chance to speak with Chris today. We'll talk about how she created a space for other survivors to come together and what it was like for her to confront D'Angelo at his hearing this past June. But first, let's check in with the filmmakers Liz Garbus and Elizabeth Wolf about how the Golden State Killer's capture changed the shape of this documentary. Liz and Elizabeth, hello again. Hi. Hi. Okay, now take me back to where you were and when you found out that the Golden State Killer had been arrested. Our first shoot day, we went to Chicago. We got to meet Michelle's family, sisters, brother, nieces, nephew. Patton was there, Michelle's co-authors, Billy Jensen and Paul Haynes went home to the hotel after a late night of shooting and a couple drinks with the family and woke up in the morning to text messages that there was a suspect in custody. Oh, my God. And that was a crazy moment of, oh, my God. We're all trying to get to an airport, trying to convene in New York. It is the roller coaster that Michelle must have felt with every high that she had on this case. And there was like this is a mad race. We were all in different cabs going. And and Patton was in New York because he was promoting a, a TV show. And so we ended up meeting him, right, Liz, in a green room for Seth Myers. So after this kind of like planes, trains, and automobiles journey back to New York with everybody on some different mode of transport, we all made it back in time for the DA to announce the name of the suspect and the charges. And uh, we were there to film with Patton and Billy Jensen and Paul Haynes as they learned the name. And he really did step out into the light, as Michelle predicted. There was something, I think, about not knowing who he was that was profound. And who he is is so small and tiny and uninteresting in some way. He loses power when we see his face. That's Michelle McNamara. Exactly. And it's so true. And you're looking at this pasty old man and you're thinking, oh, my God, how many hours of law enforcement, how much trauma, loss. And it's a really interesting transition to go through as a uh, filmmaker. I'm curious about the survivors in the gathering, which is almost a moment of jubilee. That is some of the most powerful stuff in the episode. Was there plans for that kind of gathering before you knew GSK's identity, or was this something that was determined to do because of it? As we got to know the survivors, as we got to know Chris Pedretti, they told us about these gatherings that they were having and how meaningful it was to meet one another at the first 
court hearing. And with some organization by Carol Daly and some of the survivors, they started to have these post-hearing barbecues. Chris told us about how meaningful they were to her. And, you know, we said, hey, this would be really important to show. Would you invite us to one? It was very generous of these women. This is a bit of a sacred space for them to be together and know that they don't have to say things to all understand each other. This story has lived for many, many years as an ellipses. It's dot, dot, dot. Never know when it's going to end. And I think you've put a period at the end of the sentence. What does that mean for you? You know, when I think about what all the survivors went through, when I think about what our country is going through, our world is upside down right now as we record this podcast with righteous unrest and a pandemic forcing people apart. And Michelle had a mantra, it's chaos, be kind. And we're all in the chaos. We can't control all of it, but we can be kind. So for me, it's a, a good mantra to adopt. I have really taken away from this project and from Michelle's life and from the stories of the survivors about how important it is to take the time to talk about the hard stuff. And I think that that goes to what Liz is saying about what's going on today, the unrest, our feelings of hopelessness, our feelings of just being untethered, a lack of stability, and really taking a moment to talk about these feelings and to talk about the problems. Michelle picked the name of the book, I'll Be Gone in the Dark, and how important it is, the idea of dark and light and just letting the darkness come into the light. We have to shine a light on it. These conversations with you two over the past few weeks have been more valuable than you can know. Thank you both. Thank you so much. Thank you, Nancy. As we see in the documentary, a few days before Christmas in 1976, Chris Pedretti, who had recently turned 15, was home alone playing the piano when the Golden State Killer attacked her. Societal and family pressures forced her to stay silent for nearly four decades. But thankfully, that changed when Chris started telling her story in 2018. I'm so pleased to share my conversation with Chris Pedretti about her experience and what things have been like in the aftermath of D'Angelo's arrest. Chris, I find it momentous that you are the final interview for this series, and I can't tell you how grateful I am to have the opportunity to speak with you. Thank you. There is so much for us to cover, and I am really eager to find out what it was like to be in that courtroom slash ballroom in Sacramento for D'Angelo's hearing back in June. And we're definitely going to get there, but I wanted to take a quick step back. How much were you paying attention to the whole Golden State Killer case in the years after your attack? I had not followed it at all. It was so ingrained in my head, my sister's head, like, this is just something we don't talk about. This just didn't happen. So I just took it out. Like, it, it just didn't exist anymore. So for about 40 years, you avoid the whole case, the updates, the lulls. But then in 2016, that changed. What happened? That is when the FBI sent out a letter to all of us saying they were going to publicize this case again, mm -hmm. hoping to find him. He would be on billboards and there would be media. And that was really the first time it popped back into my head consciously. 
that was really upsetting for me. Um, I got really angry. Why are you marketing this? Like, this is insane. The guy's dead. So if your true purpose is that you think he's alive, you better have leads. Do not do this just so you can rip my bandaid off. I remember saying that <sighs> and put me in hell all over again for nothing. Now I can't drive down that freeway where his picture is going to be. You know, you just, I don't understand any of you. And I was pretty forthright and they were very kind. <laughs> they wrote me back. They talked to me. It's okay. We really earnestly want to catch him. I did apologize, but I just don't know if they realized how hurtful and traumatic that is to get just this letter out of the blue saying, oh, he's going to be on billboards in your city as you drive by. So don't be alarmed. Yeah, I was alarmed. Knowing what was coming with the publicity of the case, is this when you started considering speaking out about the attack? No, didn't tell anyone about it. Just threw it away. Didn't talk to my sister. I don't want this in my life. So that was it. You were specifically directed by your family or your father to not talk about this because you tried. Yeah, I was still 15 and I was on the phone and I remember telling my friend what had happened and Honestly, I don't even think I realized what happened. I just told her I had been raped. Well, my dad was on the other line without me knowing, and he was furious. I got yelled at and told never to do that, and he changed our number. My parents didn't even tell their own family. I don't know why. I don't know. Now that I'm older, I could see that they were protecting me, but it didn't come across that way. I really couldn't make any sense of why this thing happened to me. And now I don't have any friends anymore. I can't talk about it. I'm definitely not the same person I was the day before. It was a confusing years. I'm talking about it now safely because both of my parents have passed on. I think if they were still alive, I probably wouldn't be talking about it. You know, that definitely correlates with Michelle McNamara and how she was able to write freely in her book about some incidences in her life because her mother was deceased and she felt at once sort of liberated. Yeah. And at the same time, wishing that her mother was there to appreciate what she was trying to communicate. I can relate to that. And it seems like you are putting a big spotlight or a big blast of sunlight to get rid of that shame. Yeah, that shame is gone. I felt the shame without knowing it was shame. I did not identify that feeling as shame. I just knew it was something to not talk about. And the few times that I did talk about it, I would be reading the person across from me to see how they were taking it. Not everybody wants to hear your story, so I understand that. But that's different than thinking nobody wants to hear your story. In 2018, you come across a newspaper article about the East Area Rapist, and it includes a photograph of Jane Carson Sandler, who's one of his survivors. She tells her story, and it really has an impact on you. Mm -hmm. Can you tell me more about what that was like? Remember, you weren't supposed to talk about this. So here's this woman with her picture, and it was a whole big old story. And I was honestly dumbfounded. Everyone knows that you're not supposed to do this because to me, that's what I had thought for years and decades. And I don't know, it just struck me. And just so I understand, seeing Jane's photo made such an impression on you that you end up writing to the newspaper's editor for her info. Then when you two are finally put in touch, she shares info from your own case file that you'd never seen before on what happened that night. And then that's what helps you start processing your attack. Is that right? That's right. 
So it's actually a beautiful story. She called me and she said, do you want to hear your story? Because I think I probably said, yeah, I don't remember a whole lot of it. Mm. And so she's reading me my story. And then she referred me to another survivor, Margaret. Mm. And she and I were close in age. She was 13 and I was 15 when it happened. Margaret says, oh, Carol Daly was so amazing. Wasn't she? And I said, I don't know Carol Daly. Carol Daly wasn't at my attack. So for anyone who needs a quick reminder, Carol Daly is one of the original detectives on the East Area Rapist cases, and she's also the only woman on that team at the time. Mm -hmm. And then Carol reached out to me after Margaret reached out to her and said, can I come over? And oh my gosh, Carol Daly is going to come to my house. I was so nervous. I was like bumping into walls. And I called my sister and my husband came home from work and we all met with Carol. She is badass and the kindest woman you'll ever meet. She brought my police report and she said, I I don't know exactly why I'm here because we don't know each other. She says, but I knew I had to be here and I want to be here. She left the police report and I decided to read it with my sister and my husband. Neither one of them knew the details. My sister only knew what she had read on the internet because she knew not to talk to me about it because we weren't allowed. And she's in her late fifties. I'm in my mid fifties and we're still obeying those rules. Wow. So it was mind blowing. Then it was that freedom. Like, wait, I can talk about this. This isn't something that has to be guarded anymore. And after that, it was kind of emotional. Then I told my kids because we hadn't talked about that either. And I felt empowered. And here's the best part. Three weeks later, he was caught. Wow. So had I got that news that he had been arrested without this escalation of understanding more and and learning, honestly, I don't know what I would have done. So did D'Angelo's arrest feel gratifying, like a resolution for you? Well, it wasn't immediate. I was very happy with him being dead. Mm. I had no problem with that sucker being gone. And I was actually on a business trip in L.A., so I was by myself. It was like 6 in the morning, and I started getting calls saying he'd been caught, and it threw me back all the way to the day I got raped. It's kind of like that was the point where the healing began, but I had to go through all of those reactions. So, no, I was numb. I couldn't talk. My husband said, Chris, I can't hear you. And I was nodding my head. He's like, I can't see you. (laughs) And, you know, I I remember specifically that day saying, okay, just go back to bed. This didn't happen. And I finally left the room and told my boss, which was very strange because I'm at work. She's not a friend of mine. And she was so compassionate. She helped me get a flight home. I cried all the way home and it was insane. And it took a little while to feel that gratitude, probably four or five months. I don't, have you ever had a time where you felt happy, sad, angry, surreal? When you feel them all at once, you can't define them. So happy, it was not. Angry, it was not. Like It was everything all smushed into one. And it, it took a while for me to even get to the point where, okay, this really happened. This person has a face. Mm. And what if I know him? Mm. You know, and so waiting for that press conference to see, that was agonizing. There was a time for about three years that he and I lived two minutes apart from each other. And when I heard that, I was like, oh my God, like, 
was he behind me at McDonald's? Do we shop the same grocery store? You uh, know, so uh, he was he was right in my world. Then I began therapy. <laughs> yeah, the best therapy of oh my gosh, she was amazing. And I met other victims, and we started our own support groups. And it's been a two year journey, but I, I'm really happy where I'm at right now. And I am happy he's caught. By the way, <laughs> you started a Facebook support group. Is that right? A private support group. Mm-hmm. It's called Sexual Assault Survivors. It's time to tell your story. Mm. I even got a message right before coming on with you that she said, and I was like, oh my gosh, this is the best when I hear this. I have been holding my story in for so long. It's time for me to tell it. I'm going to tell it. Mm. It's healing for them, but it's a give and take. Selfishly, I'll be honest, it's continued healing for me. I think something that has really resonated with me with this series is just how there is a widespread culture and societal issue with sexual assault and rape. And so that means that almost everyone you know has been touched by it in some way. That's right. And so when someone is interested in being a supporter, what does that mean for you? To be a supporter is someone that can be there for me. If I want to talk, if I don't want to talk, it's very validating for me when somebody has a question how did you get by or what's it like now? Or, you know, how can I be a better friend for you? They're very supportive questions. And I think that sometimes supporters don't actively support because they also have sort of been told through our own culture that leave it alone. This is a no touch. It's uncomfortable. And she's a brave woman. You go girl and move on. But as any victim knows, this journey doesn't really end. It just evolves. Something that I have thought a lot about since I saw your interview in the series is you say something to the effect of like, I will always wonder what my life would have been like if this hadn't happened. Mm -hmm. What does that mean? Then it meant I didn't have a lot of self-worth. It was my future is gone. Like, I don't know who I could have been. And I deserve to have that person. I deserve to be the person I was supposed to be. And he took that from me. December 17th, I was just a regular old kid, right? Going to school, records, shopping, you know. December 18th, I'm mentally preparing myself to die Mm. because that's what I thought was going to happen. And then December 19th, I was still alive, but I had died. A big part of me had died. And I think for years, 40 years, you know, failed marriages. I couldn't keep a job. I just kept quitting. And I was successful. Nobody knew this had happened. Mm. I just kept getting better job offers. But that wasn't really why I was leaving. I just couldn't get too comfortable in one place. So I never had resolved who could I be all those decades because I know it wasn't the person I was being but I didn't know how to be anyone else than what had been handed to me without my permission. Therapy for two years helped a lot. I don't feel that you can be set right for yourself with just therapy. And I don't feel you can be just set right with support. You need them both. Yeah. My therapist was saying, you know, your whole life, you have not talked about it. She's right. When people would talk about it, I would get upset. Like, why are they, I just, I found it offensive. And she said, well, maybe you should try telling your story. And that's kind of where all this started. Mm -hmm. 
And it was the smartest advice ever. Being able to tell it without judgment and instead I got hugs and love and it was not the response I thought I would get. And now I understand why people tell their story. And now that is why I encourage others to tell their story because this prison we keep ourselves in, we're locking ourselves in. Nobody else is locking ourselves in. We are, and we need to escape. And when you escape that prison and you find out that everything keeps going, the world keeps spinning, everything is good, it's a relief (laughs) and it is liberating. And then you want to be there for the next person that wants to share their story. Back in June of this year, there was a hearing where you and other survivors finally got to face D'Angelo. What was that day like for you walking into that courtroom? Walking into that courtroom, I knew everybody there. I was like, hey, Robin, hey, you know, I, I knew everybody. And the support is just overwhelming and amazing. Oh my gosh, we were really happy and relieved to see he's going to be sitting right in front of us. We are used to seeing his back. Now he has to sit on display for the 150 people that were there to watch. And we watched. And he came in in a wheelchair. It's totally fake. We have heard many reports of him doing push-ups in his cell. Even the, you know, like, no, everything about him is fake. Oh, you mean his whole, like, guilty? Yeah, bullshit. Right. I'm sorry. Yes, wrong. You could say bullshit. It's a podcast. Okay, bullshit. (laughs) Bullshit. Everything about him is bullshit. Um, So finally it starts. It was hard. It was hard hearing the details to sit and listen to the heartbreaking details of my friends and my friend's parents or mother or father who was killed. It was just, it was relentless. It was one after the next, after the next, after the next. I think there was like 88 counts, right? So it took all day. It was hard. And there was a lot of love for these people and just a renewed hatred of this man. As he sits up there, helpless, and we all know he's faking it, while we all listen to all the things that he did. And my only fear about that whole day is that D'Angelo is sitting up there getting off on this. Mm -hmm. Or when he went back to his concrete bed that night, is that what he thought about, you know, with these trophies to him? Mm -hmm. So there's this incredibly powerful moment during the hearing And it's when the court read out the different counts against D'Angelo and each survivor decided to stand up and identify themselves as their case files were read. And when Jane Carson Sandler stood, she gave a thumbs up to a certain detail. Yeah. And everyone applauded. Can you tell me more about this moment and what it was like for you in the room? I had asked our victim's advocate if we could stand because they said they were going to call us Jane Doe and we're not Jane Doe's. We have names. We are not going to show this world that we're afraid. We're not. Why don't you take a look at us, D'Angelo? Because we're over here on this side of the room. So when she got up, it was when they read the comment that he had a little penis and she did her thumbs up when all of us just started laughing at him. I want to make that clear, at him. And if that did not bring him some humiliation, yes, I don't know what would, but that is why we were laughing. 
We were just kind of like right on. Yeah, <laughs> because uh, uh, one might think that a serial rapist's worst nightmare is to have more than like 50 women mocking and pointing and laughing at him. Yeah, And that must exactly. have been particularly gratifying in an otherwise kind of one-way experience. Yeah, it was perfect. <laughs> <laughs> it was good. And, it, and it, it was probably the first non-somber moment. It was pretty awesome. I think that's what's been nice about seeing the coverage is that I've seen you, I've seen others who are speaking openly, and it helps diminish his presence. Mm -hmm. His fame is over. It's important for people to see that even people like him will get caught. And even people like him do not have the power to take over anybody's life. You don't get this power. We got it back. That's the thing. We got it back. In August, there will be another hearing. And this time, you and the other survivors will get to speak about your experiences and even address D'Angelo directly. How are you feeling about that? You know, people say, oh, you were so brave to go to this hearing. I'm like, no, 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 no. The impact statement is going to be an act of bravery, I think. That's going to be really burying our soul. He's going to act like he can't hear us. I get it. But he can hear. It's going to be my one opportunity to share with him, how he didn't accomplish what he hoped to. I'm thriving. I'm doing great. And I do think I have a purpose in life now. I do feel like I've kind of found my calling and I'm at peace. I really am at peace. I can't think of a better way to end this podcast. Thank you to Chris Pedretti for being so open and sharing with us. And thank you to the other survivors who spoke so bravely in the series. And thanks to Liz Garbus, Elizabeth Wolf, and the entire Story Syndicate team for creating such an incredible series and for taking the time to walk us through their process. And lastly, thanks to everyone who's been listening at home these past few weeks. While our companion show is over, we're not completely done yet. Stay tuned for a special bonus episode exploring the case that started it all for Michelle McNamara, the unsolved murder of Kathy Lombardo. Coming to you soon. Stay subscribed so you don't miss it. I'm Nancy Miller. This podcast was produced by HBO in conjunction with Pineapple Street Studios. Our team at Pineapple Street Studios includes executive producers Jenna Weiss-Berman, Max Linsky, and Barry Finkel. Our managing producer is Gabrielle Lewis. This episode's lead producer is Emmanuel Hapsis. Our associate producer is Janelle Anderson. Our researcher is Melissa Slaughter. And our editors are Maddie Sprunkheiser and Joel Lovell. Our engineer is Noriko Okabe. Original music by Andrew Epen of Basement Crafts. And special thanks to Greg Beaton at Tangelo Grove Studios for engineering help throughout the series. If you like the show and you have a minute, you can review and rate this podcast via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else you might get your podcasts. It really helps people find the show. You can also stream it on HBO and HBO Max. If you or someone you know has been sexually assaulted, you can get help by calling the Rape, Abuse, and Incest National Network, or RAIN. You can call their 24-hour hotline at 800-656-HOPE-HOPE or visit hbo.com slash gone for more resources.